Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome. I'm Mary Beth Hines. Thanks for joining us on Keys for SLPs for this episode, Keys to Working with the Professional Voice User. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Erin Donahue is the clinical manager at the Blaine Block Institute for Voice Analysis and Rehabilitation and the Professional Voice Center of Greater Cincinnati. She receives an honorarium from speechtherapypd.com for this presentation. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today. Erin N. Donahue, MACCC, SLP, is a voice pathologist, singing voice specialist, and clinical manager at the Blaine Block Institute for Voice Analysis and Rehabilitation and the Professional Voice Center of Greater Cincinnati. Erin's specialized practice includes rehabilitation of singing voice, gender affirmative voice training, and evaluation and treatment for professional voice users and elite vocal performers. Erin has authored multiple articles and co-authored the second edition of Rating Laryngeal Video Stroboscopy and Acoustic Recordings, Normal and Pathological Samples, as well as an exercise in the Vocal Athlete, Application and Techniques for the Hybrid Singer with her mentor, Dr. Wendy LeBourne. She has also developed a training module for graduate student clinicians on evaluation and treatment for a voice feminization patient. Most recently, Erin authored two chapters for Dr. Brenda Smith's class voice, Fundamentals for Lifelong Singing. Erin also continues to perform at a professional level. Welcome, Erin. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I'm so happy to have you with us today, and this is such an interesting topic. So tell us about your journey as an SLP and how you came to specialize in voice. Sure. So I started out as a singer. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I started singing at a young age. And at that point, I found musical theater. I loved musical theater. I went to a school of the arts in Florida. It's called Douglas Anderson School of the Arts. It's a performing arts magnet school. And I went there for voice. So I sang all through high school and then tried to decide, you know, at 18, what did I wanted to do with my entire life? <laughs> and I went to school in University of Florida thinking I wanted to be pre-veterinary medicine. So that's why I chose UF originally. I started in the program. I 
really missed singing a lot. And so I went to the music school and I asked one of the professors if I could just take voice lessons privately. I started taking voice lessons. And I think after like the second lesson, I was like, mm, I want to sing. That's oh, what I that's do. great. And so I switched majors to voice. My parents were super excited about that. <laughs> oh, so I switched majors to voice performance. But I knew that my personality is not necessarily the type where I wanted to be auditioning for a living. And I don't know that I had that hard shell that you need to be able to take the rejection in the, you know, in the performing life. So I ended up kind of taking a couple gen eds, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I took a gen ed in CSD in the communication sciences disorders department with a professor who had a special interest in voice. He was working on a project. I talked to him about it. I started basically being a research assistant with him. And at the same time, I was placed in the studio of Dr. Brenda Smith at University of Florida, who is a vocal pedagogue, but she also has a special interest in vocal health and also aging voice, which is interesting. And she had written some books she had co-authored with Dr. Robert Sadaloff, who's you know head of Voice Foundation, started all of that. And so at the time, I kind of was figuring out, I can put these pieces together and really combine medicine and working with treatment and also voice, which was awesome. And so I went to the Voice Foundation in Philadelphia and I I think the first year was the year that I volunteered and helped. And I was like, it was like light bulbs. Like, this is exactly what I want to do. And so I went back every year. I sang in the master classes. I learned as much as I could. And I went back to school and put in a request to do a dual degree. So I did a full degree in voice performance. So I was able to do my recitals and all of that. And then also a degree in speech pathology, you know, undergrad communication sciences and disorders. So I did them both at the same time. So pretty early, I figured out I really wanted to work with singers and with voice specifically. And so I did that through undergrad. For grad school, I ended up coming up here to Ohio. That's how I got to Ohio, to Miami University. Susan Brem, Dr. Susan Brem is there, and she did her PhD at Florida. So we had a little connection there. I loved the program there because they put everything into their master's students. They don't have a PhD program, so really everything goes into which is great. And so I was able to do a thesis and I was able to get an externship in voice because as I found along the way, when I said, I want to specialize in voice, how do you do that? There wasn't really a specific path. You know, everybody had kind of different answers. So I ended up going to Miami and doing my externship with Dr. Wendy LeBourne at the clinics where I currently work. They're long names. So we call them Bavivar and Pro Voice for short. So I ended up doing my externship there, and then I stayed on as a clinical fellow, and then I stayed on, and I've been there my entire career. So I've been there, if I include my internship, I've been there for 11 years. As a clinician, I've been there for 10 years next month. Well, what an exciting journey. That is a really neat story, and it you know, it really sounds like speech-language pathology was just the most ideal career for all of your interests combined. Yeah, it was so interesting, because once I got into it, too, I realized oh my gosh, you can do so many things as an SLP. Like a lot of people that I've known along the way have started off as singers and thought they wanted to go into voice. And then they started doing this and they're like, oh my gosh, I love working with kids or I love neuro or I love dysphagia or, you know, and then they kind of, you know, their interests go off into another direction, which is so cool. I love that about it. Yeah, it is cool. But it's also cool that you have stayed with your specialty all along from the very, very beginning. Yes. Yeah, it was really great. It's been interesting because along the way, 
you know, I've learned so much. I just figured, oh, there must be a path to become a singing voice person, you know, and there is, but it's not exactly, you know, it's not a certification. Right. As of now, it's not a board certification. So it's a little different. Is there any movement to have it be a board certification? I know you work a lot with graduate students as well. Yes. It sounds like they're in the process of potentially creating a board certification in voice, which would be awesome. I think it's going to be voice and upper airway. Okay. Okay. And when you say they, do you mean ASHA? ASHA. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good to know. All right. So as a voice specialist and clinical manager, can you describe the people that you help? Sure. So we work with everything as far as age, backgrounds, genders, everything. We don't do a ton of pediatric voice because we're not a pediatric specialty clinic, but we do see some pediatric voice, uh, especially pediatric vocal performers. We see quite a bit of that. We see all ages as far as voice, upper airway, and swallowing evaluations and treatment. As far as voice, a lot of aging voice. We see a lot of that. We see general benign lesions, general voice disorders. We see quite a bit of professional voice users, which I know we'll talk about more. Neurogenic voice. We see pre and post-op patients. So anybody who's having any procedures, you know, to like the thyroid or the cervical spine where they're going in through the front, we'll see pre and post-op for biopsies of the vocal folds or any laryngeal surgeries. We see gender affirmative voice, singing voice. And then as far as dysphagia, we'll see aging swallow. We see a lot of post-radiation head neck cancer patients and dysphagia. Secondary to that, we see muscle tension dysphagia patients. And then as far as breathing, a lot of just disordered dysfunctional breathing vocal cord dysfunction or exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, whatever the term you want to use. There's several there. And then a lot of chronic cough, especially post-COVID, we've seen a lot of chronic coughers. Laryngeal sensory neuropathy is kind of another term or laryngeal hypersensitivity for that. But people who have chronic cough, chronic throat clearing, chronic throat irritation kind of thing. So that's the majority of what we see. So it's really a lot, even though it's you think it's just a voice clinic. There's a ton of variability day to day. Just anything and everything related to voice, but you specialize in, well, in several areas, but you really, the professional voice users come to you at your clinic. Yes. So all of us, we have seven clinicians in our clinic currently, and we all see all voice swallowing and upper airway, but we all kind of have our subspecialties. So mine is rehabilitation of singing voice, professional voice users, and gender affirmative voice are really pretty much... 90 plus percent of what I see. Wonderful. So today let's focus on the professional voice. Can you define a professional voice user and an elite vocal professional or vocal athlete? Sure. So professional voice users are anyone whose voice is essential or required for their job. So it can be, it's interesting because professional voice users often don't characterize themselves as professional voice users, even though they are. A great example is customer service representatives. They're on the phone for like eight hours plus a day, talking constantly. They're definitely professional voice users. Educators, huge professional voice users. They are using their voice so much. Speech language pathologists are professional voice users. No matter what population you're working with, you are using your voice a lot for work. Attorneys, I've seen a lot of attorneys, especially trial attorneys, sales and marketing professionals, administrative professionals, anybody who's answering a phone for a living, 
obviously the ones you'd think of would be like radio hosts, TV hosts, you know, things like that as well. My husband always reminds me pilots and air traffic controllers, even though you wouldn't think of it. Very important. (laughs) Yes, they have to have their voice to communicate. So really, there's so many more that I'm missing, but really anyone who needs their voice for their job. If you had laryngitis and you had no voice, you would have to take off work because you could not functionally do your job, would be a professional voice user. Then within that professional voice users, there's also elite vocal performers or vocal athletes. So they're kind of a subgroup of that. And that's more what people think of when they think of professional voice users. So that would be singers and actors primarily, but actors could be stage actors, screen actors, voiceover actors, anybody who really needs maximum vocal performance at all times. So they really need maximal power, quality, they need stamina, flexibility, range, agility. They need all of these things all the time in order to do their job. So it's a little bit different. The baseline requirements are much higher than professional voice users, even though professional voice users need their voice for their job. Okay, that makes sense. Now for the professional voice user, not the vocal athlete, do you have people who come to you who just want to improve their voice versus that they have a pathology that they need to treat? Mm -hmm. You can have that too, just basically optimizing voice as well, especially if they need that to do their job effectively. Okay. And then for the vocal athlete, do you see vocal athletes on an ongoing basis or for like a certain amount of time and then they move on? It just depends. So in the clinic, you kind of have to look at it as it has to be rehabilitative. So it's always interesting when you're looking at each person, it has to be really highly individualized as to what are we working towards because we want you to get to normal. Yes, it'd be ideal to work towards optimal, but we need to get you to your baseline. So a professional voice user, for example, like a teacher, their baseline may be just the stamina. They might be getting super vocally fatigued every day and getting hoarse by the end of the day and they're not bouncing back. And so for them, our goal is really for them to be able to do what they need to do for you know six to eight hours that they're teaching every day. And then also a lot of them have little kids at home. So they want to go home and sing to their kids and read stories to their kids. And that's important too. So really we need to get them back to where they can do that. Elite vocal performers maybe will come in with things like, I am missing my pianissimo, my super, super quiet, high, high, high B, like the super high note, really quietly. They need it for a certain piece of rep that they're singing and they're missing it and they're having trouble with it. So for them, the bar is definitely higher for where we're trying to get them to normal, but still that's their normal. So that's rehabilitative in nature. So as far as whenever we're seeing them in the clinic, it has to be getting them back to their normal. So as long as it's that, we'll see them until we're getting them to either where we've plateaued or where we've met their goals. And then beyond that, it becomes more of a voice lesson, which is not reimbursable through insurance. It's not something we can do in the clinic. I do voice habilitation type. I've done voice habilitation type work, voice lessons, but that's not within the clinic. That's an outside thing that you would do or send them to a voice teacher. And that's what I usually do is have some trusted voice teachers that I'll recommend and send them to so they can really work on optimizing because that's an ongoing thing. You know, you can work on singing voice once a week or more every single week for years and years and years, but insurance isn't going to reimburse that. So it's not rehabilitative. Makes sense. Rehabilitative. So you really have to be clear about that. Okay. Okay. And I imagine you have a pretty good working relationship with those voice teachers that it, it's reciprocal. They send you yes. patients or clients that you send. 
them back. That's great. That's a great relationship. And it's so nice to, you know, they can see the people every week. I can see them every week for a time, but then it becomes something where it has to go to them. So it's a really nice back and forth and helping each other really help our patients and our clients and our students reach their goals. Well, that is great. So what are the specific needs of the professional voice user and how do the needs differ from an elite voice professional or vocal athlete? So I think that goes back to, yeah, that goes back to just what their requirements are, what their normal is. Typically with elite voice professionals, they're using their voice in in different ways. You know, every single day they're stretching their range to its max. You know, they're at their physiologic extremes, basically. Whereas somebody who's maybe an educator, who's not a singer and not a vocal performer, you know, they're speaking every day, they're using their voice loudly and softly, and they have variability in their pitch, but they're maybe not needing, they're not going to their physiologic range every day, not needing that. And so that's just a little bit of a difference in how much variability they can have in range requirements, in power requirements, in stamina requirements, those kind of things. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. That makes sense. And what are your recommendations for the professional voice user to optimize vocal health use and, of course, longevity? Because for the professional voice user, longevity, that can relate to their their career and their ability to maintain employment. Oh, for sure. A lot of them are things that when you think of, they are kind of common sense things, but people don't do, (laughs) even though they know it. They just don't always adhere to it until they kind of run into a problem and they're forced into being a little bit more strict with everything. So hydration is the number one thing people will think of when they think of vocal health. And that's for a good reason. We need hydration. There's a couple different ways that you can hydrate though. The tip, the one that everybody thinks of is more systemic hydration. So drinking water. Yes. It's so simple, but people don't do it. Just drink water. Whenever you're drinking water, it it hydrates you systemically. And then basically what can happen or what's thought to happen is the mucus that your body produces in your throat and in your larynx is a little bit more thin. It's not as viscous and thick if you're better hydrated. You get better lubrication, which you need because your vocal folds are vibrating so fast, so frequently. You need lubrication to avoid getting friction. So just making sure you're drinking enough water day to day. And that varies from person to person, depending on, you know, climate that you're in. If you're in a hot environment, if you're very physically active, you have higher water intake requirements. And then if you're just a bigger person in general, you can have higher water needs. A lot of our water can also come from our food. So cucumbers, melons, berries, lettuce, things that are high in water content can be helpful to add hydration into our bodies as well. So that's all systemic hydration. I never really thought of food. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but there's an article that actually puts, you know, it's looking at hydration in general. And I want to say it was, I don't want to misquote it, but I feel like it was maybe 70% of your water is through actual liquid and somewhere, it was somewhere between like 20 to 40% was actually from food intake. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one thing with, with hydration. The other one is surface hydration. So humidification, steaming, putting moisture directly on the vocal folds. So some people need this. Some people don't. I always say, if you don't feel really dry, if you're not having issues with dryness, you don't necessarily need to go out of your way to be surface hydrating. 
But if you feel dry, it can be something that can be helpful. If you're at a point where we're in the clinic and we're talking about why you look dry and they're saying, you know, I'm drinking 80 ounces of water a day and I'm still so dry. In that case, I think surface hydration is really beneficial. So you can do humidification at night is great. So especially in the winter, if you're in a cold place in the winter and you're in the dry heat all the time, putting a humidifier next to your bed can make a huge difference. And I've always told people this, but I never did it for myself really until I had my babies in my room. And, you know, you have your humidifier on whenever they have little colds or something when they were teeny tiny in their bassinet. And I would have it right next to me and I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be like, I feel so, this feels great. Why don't I do this all the time? <laughs> oh, that's great. Especially as a new mother, you were probably tired. And so to wake up in the morning feeling great. <laughs> yeah, at least my voice felt better. Right. <laughs> but that can make a difference. And then steaming. And you can be really low tech with steaming and just, you know, heat up a bowl of water or turn on the shower really hot and breathe in the steam. Or you can get really high tech with it and get a little personal nebulizer and you can steam with things like saline solution instead of water. There's a couple different things you can do as far as that, but really just making sure you're hydrated is huge. If you're on drying medications, that can be really, really difficult. So making sure you're doing everything in your power to stay hydrated is important. So what would some of the drying medications be in general? So antihistamines are a really common one. So if you're on any allergy medications, they can be very, very drying. There are some other ones that are less common. One that I see that's like the worst for drying in the clinic is Accutane with my teenage singers who are on it. They're so dry, so dry. But really, I think antihistamines are probably one of the most common ones. And there's a lot of different ones. So some people notice, you know, when I'm on Claritin, I feel really dry. But then when I'm on, you know, Zyrtec, I feel less dry. And so just kind of talking to your doctor and figuring out if you feel like you're dry all the time, always having a discussion with your physician just to say, you know, the medications that I'm on, are any of these impacting, you know, hydration and how dry I feel? And is there an alternative? Mm -hmm. Back to Accutane, when the teenage patients come in who are on Accutane and they're dry, have they already made that association? Or when you talk to them, are you usually the first one to tell them? Yeah, it's about half and half. Some of them know. And usually, I mean, it's a really well-known side effect with it. But some of them are like, oh, like light bulbs. Oh, I didn't realize that. And they just look really irritated from how dry they are. And it's really challenging because it's a hard thing to combat. There's also some autoimmune type conditions people can have that make them very dry. Sjogren's syndrome can make people very, very dry systemically. There's some different things that they can potentially be prescribed that can help with moisture if they're super dry due to a medical condition post-radiation patients, super dry. So there's some specific things like that. And it's kind of a case-by-case basis looking at water intake, food intake. You know, Are they doing surface hydration? Is this something we can help? Is this something we can't help as far as medication or like from a medical management standpoint, can they help them with that? And that would be something we'd discuss with the ENT and they would look into whether or not that was warranted or a possibility. So back to the surface hydration and you talked about using the humidifier at night. Is it beneficial for people to do surface hydration right before they're using their voice? Yes. I think some people notice a big benefit from it. Some people don't notice a difference. I usually tell people if they're feeling like they're dry, if we're going to try it out, we don't want to try it right before a big show for the first time, just in case they feel like it doesn't really, you know, jive with them. But trying to do that about five to 10 minutes 
within, you know, an hour of when they're going to be singing or so just to trial it. And it's really something where it's kind of like with warm ups. there's a lot of different ways to warm up. And so you have to figure out which way is optimal for you, which way feels like it's the most efficient. And same thing with hydration, with the steaming. Some people feel like it's super, super beneficial. They have a certain, you know, a lot of singers have a very certain routine that works for them. And so they really stick to it. They're really good about doing that usually when they're in the middle of performance. And so just playing around with timing and how long they steam and with what they steam and all of that to figure out what optimizes it for them. Now, are there any specific herbals or additions to the steam that are specific that would help? I think the other thing would be electrolytes. So for systemic hydration, I don't love that a lot of the electrolyte solutions have a lot of added acids. Anything that's shelf stable oftentimes have added acids in order to help with the shelf stability. So things like Gatorade or, you know, things like that, you know, they're better than soda, (laughs) but... I still don't love that. Smart water has electrolytes and also coconut water has naturally occurring electrolytes. So often I'll tell singers to consider trying that. The only thing is they really have to, same thing, try it when they're not in the middle of a performance because coconut water can have a laxative effect for some people. (laughs) So you don't want to drink too much of it too soon. But some people feel like that's very beneficial. I've had good experiences with, I feel like it's very hydrating for me. So when I'm doing something and performing, I will drink it a little bit more regularly than I would otherwise. Now, how about the electrolyte tablets that you can put in your water? So I don't know a lot about those. I would have to look at the ingredients to see if they have added acids. And really, that's also a case-by-case thing. If somebody has reflux and we're really battling reflux, I want to be really nitpicky about what they put in their body if it has added acids or citrus or things like that. But if it's somebody who's really not struggling with that, they feel those tablets work well for them. I'm all up for trying it. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Okay. So hydration, 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 systemic and surface and tailor it to you specifically. Mm -hmm. Yep. Vocal pacing is another big one. So vocal pacing or um, conserving your voice as able as needed is super important for professional voice users. You have so much voice use that's required out of you day to day. And if you really think about it, the reason we use the term vocal athlete is because you're using your voice at a higher level, just like an athlete uses their body at a higher level. You know, I'm not a gymnast. I'm not a big dancer. You know, I'm not needing a ton of flexibility from my body day to day. So I'm not really going there. Same thing can be said for vocal athletes or elite vocal professionals or performers. They're needing a lot more flexibility out of their voice, you know, versus professional voice users need a lot of stamina. So the reason I go back to that is to say, if you're a marathon runner, you're going to train to run a marathon, and then you're going to be very specific and very methodical about how you train for that marathon, and then how you run that marathon, and then what you do afterwards. As a vocal professional, you know, a teacher, uh, customer sales rep, you are using your voice like in a marathon almost every day. And so, but we're not always training our voice to do that or planning for our voice to do that. That actually gets into another point with maintaining vocal health or optimizing vocal health, which is conditioning your voice, which we'll talk about in a minute. But with vocal pacing, you have to pull back where you can because you can only do so much. You know, I'll get some people in the clinic who are having issues and they're teaching all day long. They're not using any amplification. They're yelling over a classroom all day. And then they're going and singing with choirs 
And then they have little kids at home they're reading to and they're singing to and talking to. And then they're talking on their Bluetooth on their phone on their way into work. And then they're singing in the shower when they're in the shower. And they're never quiet. They're never quiet. (laughs) They're enthusiastic voice users, which I love because I'm one too. But really, you have to look at your voice can't go, 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 go all the time and not reach a breaking point. So you have to pace yourself vocally. So talking to patients about prioritizing voice use requirements. So really sitting down and writing down how are the ways I use my voice day to day and what's a priority for me. And usually, you know, whatever you do to get your income is the biggest priority. And then maybe it's something like if you love singing in a choir or something, that might be a a priority as well. And then a lower priority may be like singing in the shower, even though it's fun, it is fun or singing in the car. But if you're getting to the point where you're fatiguing out every day, you have to pull back somewhere vocal naps during the day. So just periods of time where you don't use your voice, where you're quiet, which a lot of people have those moments where they could do that and they don't. They just go and have a conversation with somebody or, you know, they take a break by making a phone call or something like that. But instead just taking naps during the day, avoiding overuse. So just too loud, too much. If you're at a sporting event and you love going to sporting events, do you really need to scream and yell? I know. <laughs> I know. Maybe for some people that's a priority. But I love what one of my patients told me recently. She said her daughter is an elite athlete. And she said, you know, she was talking to me the other day. Her daughter was talking to her and saying, Mom, you know, I can't hear you. I can't hear you when I'm out there. <laughs> really? It's not helping you? And she's like, it's not helping me. And I can't hear you. And your voice, you're in voice therapy. Like, let's you don't have to. I love you. I know you love me. I know you're, you know, hold up a sign, shake something, you know, do something else that's not vocal. So that's another way you can pull back. Oh, that's great. That's a great story. <laughs> so anything you can do to pace yourself and pull back, you know, if you have a busy week vocally, knowing that you're going to take the weekend to kind of take it easy vocally is really, really important. You need to give yourself time to recover. So vocal pacing is a big one. So when people come in, professional voice users come in, not the athletes, but the user like you just described, have they tried things like vocal naps without calling it a vocal nap? Or have they tried things on their own? Yes. It depends on the person. A lot of them, though, get to a point where they're kind of forced into it. Where they're like, I just, my voice is so tired. I just had to take a break. And then a lot of them take it upon themselves to conserve their voice very significantly for a period of time before they come into the exam. And then they they come in and say, I've been really taking it easy over the past two weeks and my voice feels a lot better. And I'm like, yep, ding, ding, ding. There's a sign that, you know, we need to really be pulling back. So I think a lot of people do do that just naturally, but you never know what's happening until you look. And that's something I tell everybody, you know, there are certain voice disorders where pulling back is maybe not the best thing. They need to condition more. I think of like my aging voice, we call it presbylaryngies, where they have vocal fold bowing and weakness and their vocal folds can't close all the way. And so they're very low intensity. They have a lot of raspiness. They have a very decreased range, very low stamina, very high vocal fatigue. And for them, you know, resting is not necessarily significantly better. Like they need to condition, they need to use their voice and you never really know what's going on until you look. So I think it's always smart if you're having voice issues to conserve as able because pushing is not going to make things better. We're all in this American way of like, the show must go on. I need to, you know, push through. I can't take a sick day. Like educators all the time come in and I'm like, do you have sick time? And they're like, yeah, I have a lot of sick time. Did you use sick time during this? And they're like, no, I couldn't. Getting a sub is too much of a pain. 
you know, which I understand, but still you got to make your voice a priority and pull back when you're having issues. So that way you don't prolong it. Yes. It seems like, you know, for certain illnesses we would, or pathologies, we would take time off, but voice is something that people think that they can just push through. And so they do. And, you know, a lot of people need to conserve those days for whatever reasons. So it's a matter of prioritizing. Yes. Yeah. So vocal pacing is big. As for the teachers, going into that a little bit, amplification is really, really, really big. I feel like more and more over when I first started, I feel like a lot of teachers were not using amplification. It was very rare for somebody to come in and say, I have a microphone in my classroom. You know, they usually, a lot of times they didn't. I feel like it's becoming more common that they have access to a mic, whether or not they choose to use it and whether or not it's a super effective type of mic. But I think that it's really important to think about how loudly you're using your voice, because even for my educators who come in who are, you know, drama teachers or choir teachers, and they have a good background in vocal technique, and they say, I know how to project my voice, you know, in a technically sound way. I know how to efficiently make my voice louder. That's great if you can, but it still doesn't mean that it's best for your voice because your vocal folds are still hitting harder together. So with more force. So I'll tell people that even if you're speaking, you know, at this level all day versus this level all day long, that makes a huge difference in how much impact there is and strain on your vocal folds. So using amplification, even if you feel like you don't need it, is super important. Even a small group, bigger groups, it's even more important. Younger children, it's even more important. Behavioral issues, it's even more important. The number one thing I hear from my educators who give me pushback about using amplification, once they start using it, they'll come in and say, I have no idea how I never used this before. Like, this is so great. Like, it just, it saves your voice so much. So most of them at that point use it forever. That's interesting. I wonder if in teacher education, if voice use is brought up and... How much would it be? So like, let's say, you know, right now we're at graduation time, but how much would a classroom amplification system be that's, you know, not super high end, but would be efficient enough for a classroom of 20 students? I mean, it is so variable, but you can get it for real. I mean, you can get it for a couple hundred dollars for a pretty good system. And there may be even cheaper options. So a lot of times teachers will come in and their classrooms already set up with speakers. They already have a sound system. They just don't have the mic. And so just finding a mic that can connect into that or can they can use with that is pretty inexpensive. But there are other options. I mean, they have them now where I always recommend over the ear or something that's close to your mouth because they'll give you those lanyards that are hanging way down and you end up holding it like a handheld mic (laughs) because you have to keep it close to your face or lapels are kind of far away too. So over the ear is the best. And they have like the old you know, Madonna, Britney Spears style ones, but then they also have little teeny ones now that are almost like the little Bluetooth thing you can use on your phone. But they'll have microphones like that, that hook via Bluetooth wirelessly to a little small speaker that you can just open up. It has enough power to carry over really a pretty big sized group and it's portable. And so a lot of times educators, you know, a lot of times at this point, administration's pretty supportive of it. If a teacher goes to them and they say, you know, I really need amplification. I'm having some voice issues. They're usually happy to go, okay, we'll get you something. But if not, I do have a lot of teachers who have actually preferred to buy their own because it's portable and it's theirs and they can use it no matter what classroom they're in, no matter what school they're in, they can continue to use it. There's a lot of good data to support that 
It not only benefits the teacher, but it also benefits the students. There's better comprehension of the message that is delivered if it's delivered via amplification. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of things that teachers can bring to administration to say, you know, this is going to benefit the students. This is going to benefit me. It will save you money because I will have less days out of the classroom potentially. There's a lot of benefits to it that I think appeal to administration and make them think, oh, okay, this is worth us investing in. In working with teachers, have you ever had any teachers say, oh, yeah, when I was in graduate school, you know, we had someone come in and talk about voice use or we had a chapter in a book or have they been educated specifically on voice use? Hmm. I'm trying to think if any of them have that are solely educators, because definitely if they are music educators, they've had some background in that. So they're aware. Usually more with educators, I hear more about it from in-services that the schools do. So I've gone in and done some in-services for different groups, whether it's just a, I've done some that are just like that school district. I've done like certain grades and I've done music educators for a district and things like that. So I've, I've been brought in on those, but usually it's because I had a patient and they're like, everybody needs this information. Please come in. You know, it's not like something that is standardized and regularly part of the, you know, routine with that. I'm not sure if just general education programs have anything like that right now. I'm not sure some of them might. It would be a good way for SLPs in schools to connect with the other teachers and provide that additional service to provide that in-service. And I know you're providing some resources today Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So that would be. Yeah. And I can find the information too for you about some of the things that I'll often present to administration that I'll write in a letter for my patients to support you know, the use of amplification and all of that. Well, that's wonderful. Okay. So amplification. Mm -hmm. Amplification. Avoidance of irritants is one that, you know, is kind of obvious once you say it out loud. (laughs) So don't smoke, don't vape. Vaping is on the rise and it is terrible. We have some research about vaping. A lot of it is showing that just if it's a nicotine-based product, the bioavailability of that to the lungs is significantly higher than if somebody was smoking something with the nicotine. So it's terrible for your pulmonary system, but also all of that is going over your vocal folds. And it's not, no matter what it is, if it's heat, you know, the irritants, the all of the materials that your body's not used to, you know, that's not a normal thing for you to be inhaling, it can be really irritating on the vocal folds. So really, really talking a lot with especially young people right now about avoiding vaping. It's not, I think there's a misconception that it's much safer than smoking. I agree. I think part of that misconception is that it doesn't have the same smell, odor. It's not quite as irritating as like a burning cigarette. And so I think that misconception gets carried over into it's not as bad for you. I don't know. That's just my, in talking to some young people. And I have also seen just being on different college campuses, I feel like that vaping has actually led to more smoking. And I don't know the statistics, but just purely by observation, I'm seeing more young people smoke, unfortunately. Yes. I've had people come in the clinic recently who are very young and have been smoking for years. And the reason they have is they talk about, you know, I started with vaping, you know, we're vaping really young, like 12 or 13, they're vaping. And then it turns into smoking. And then they're working on trying to quit smoking at 22 when they've been smoking for, you know, six years. It's terrible. So that I think if voice is important to you, if your health is important to you, don't do it. I know it's easier said than done to 
Yeah, those SLPs working in schools can add that to their in-service. Yes, yes, that's huge. I mean, I really hope that it's on its way out, but avoiding things that can potentially increase reflux is another one that can be an irritant, depending on if you have a history of reflux. And reflux is this whole thing that could be a really long conversation. But basically, just because you don't have heartburn doesn't mean you don't have, you're not symptomatic for reflux. So people can have laryngopharyngeal reflux or reflux that comes up to the level of the larynx. And it can be acidic reflux. It can be non-acidic reflux. It can just be stomach contents and pepsin that's naturally occurs in your stomach that causes irritation. And basically the common symptoms of that are feeling like there's something in your throat, almost like there's mucus or something that whenever you clear and cough, it doesn't, you can't get it out of the way. It's still there. So this constant feeling of something being there. Some people get burning or irritation in their throat as well, sometimes pain, but more often than not, it's just that lump in the throat feeling. And so if somebody has reflux, really trying to avoid foods and drinks that make reflux worse. So spicy foods, citrus, fattier fried foods, tomatoes or tomato-based products. And then as far as drinks, coffee, soda, alcohol, caffeine, anything carbonated. So even carbonated water, which everybody drinks now, and then chocolate and mint. So it's a lot of what we love. It is a lot. I know. I don't have reflux, but if I did, it would be a real adjustment to my diet. Yes. I mean, I definitely have reflux. I don't always follow the diet, but when I'm symptomatic, I'm a little bit more strict with it. Well, that's a good point when you're symptomatic. That makes it a little bit more palatable. Yes. I think it is so hard to maintain that diet for a long period of time. And then on top of that, if you have food sensitivities, those can make a reflux. So even though you know gluten is not typically a reflux-inducing food, if you're gluten intolerant, it will make you reflux. So I have some patients who have to be really strict with their diet because they're having so many issues with reflux, but also food sensitivities or allergies. So that is another irritant that could be a possibly something that contributes. Another thing is just general environmental irritants. So I'll see this more in people who are working jobs where they're in a factory or they're in places where they're inhaling all these like either dust particles or if they're somewhere where there's woodworking happening or people who are doing soldering, you know, anything like that, where you could be breathing in chemicals, dust, things like that, trying to make sure you're wearing a mask in those environments. It always amazes me how many people do these jobs and don't wear masks, but doing that can make a big difference. For most of those people, have they been told to wear a mask and they just don't, or are some just is wearing a mask a new idea? I think it's an option. And so it's something where they're like, oh yeah, my work provides these things. I just don't, you know, it's a hassle. I don't want to wear it. I haven't seen a lot of patients that fall into this category since COVID, which I think has made masks much more, you know, normalized. So I would be interested to see if that carries over into what they're doing. I know for me, for stroboscopy, I used to not wear masks. I just, I did everything in the clinic without a mask. And then now that COVID has been a thing and, and I've really thought about aerosolization and, you know, how much people are coughing and gagging and things like that sometimes in the clinic, I will never do an exam without a mask ever again. I'm just going to wear them because really why not, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So I think that's changed things. The other thing I would say is just excess alcohol can be really drying and really irritating. So just avoiding things like that. So anything you're putting in your body that can be an irritant, anything you're exposed to that can be an irritant. If you have allergies, if you have significant allergies, trying to manage those and avoiding things that are irritating to you can be a really big thing. 
So just avoiding irritants, especially if they make you symptomatic. So if you're around something and you're finding that you're doing a lot of coughing, you're doing a lot of throat clearing, you're feeling really gunky when you're around it, you know, trying to avoid that if you can. Conditioning, I know we talked about a little bit, but there's a lot that goes along with conditioning. So conditioning is basically the same thing you can think of in conditioning your body. A really, really sad research thing (laughs) that I heard about once that I don't know, I don't know where this came from. I heard it on the radio, but I was like, oh, it's so depressing, was talking about deconditioning in physical activity and how after a week you already start to decondition. So if you've been working out regularly, no matter how long you have worked out in your life, if you stop for a week, you start to decondition. If you stop for a month, you basically go back to your baseline. Which oh is, no! Which is horrible. <laughs> I have to actually like find this article somewhere so I can quote it accurately. But I heard about this and I was like, "Well, I believe that. I totally believe that because voice use can be the exact same thing." I'll see some people in the clinic who are retired educators. They taught for thirty years, you know, and they spoke every day. And now they're a widow and they're not using their voice at home because they don't have anybody at home and they're not using their voice in the classroom. And their voice is fatiguing out so fast. Even one phone call is like too much for their voice. And we'll sit and have a conversation about it. And they'll say, I taught for all these years and my voice was great. And then we talk about, well, how many days do you not use your voice? And sometimes they'll say they go days and days without using their voice. And so in doing that, you're not conditioning. And so we talk about talking to pets, reading out loud, making sure you make a phone call. I think this happened a lot during COVID you know, because people weren't able to get out and see people. And so they were kind of isolated. And I think that that led to deconditioning for a lot of people. There are all these little things that occurred during COVID with the isolation that, you know, we didn't necessarily think about at the time, but the cumulative effect is is something to pay attention to. Huge. Mental health too. So big of a topic as far as, I mean, even just specifically with performers, they went over a year not knowing am I going to go back to doing what I love? Am I going to have a job? Am I like, do I need to find something else to do? Like what? It was just this huge question mark. And that impacted people so significantly mentally. But then also, why would you sing if you are not working towards anything and you're just depressed? Like nobody was conditioning, you know, during that time, or a lot of people weren't. And then finally, when things started springing back up, they're like jumping in head first and they're ready to go. Woohoo! Yeah. They're crashing and burning vocally and they're coming in and they're like, I cannot do this thing that I have done for five years in a row every winter for this specific performance, you know, and I, I can't do it. And so we had to really do a lot of conditioning with these people vocally. Not to interrupt, but that is really interesting because of course, for the vocal athlete, that is their performance is tied to mental health. But what you were saying earlier about, you know, maybe an older person who wasn't talking, our voice is really tied to our mental health and communicating using that voice. Very interesting. Yeah. And I'll tell people too about the link with emotion and voice. It's so interconnected. If you think about getting upset, the first place you feel it is in your throat. You feel your throat tightening. You can hear people's emotions through their voice. You can hear you know, when people are excited or when they're sad or when they're stressed, you can hear it in their voice. Oftentimes I'm working with patients on optimizing their efficiency of their voice. You know, we're working through resonant voice therapy or something like that. And we're getting to the point where we're talking about, we're just trying to have some spontaneous conversation for them to practice. 
And it's fascinating that when they're talking about, you know, their day and everything, they're in a really good place. And then they'll start talking about, you know, something that is stressful or sad or, you know, something in their life. And as soon as they do it, their voice changes. And so we'll talk about that connection and how that changes. They'll go back into this and they'll just talk about the stressful thing, you know, and it makes a huge difference. So our voices are just so connected. It's like the emotions take priority and the system is overloaded. So the voice goes. Yes. And I want to honor that too with patients because I don't want you to feel like you can't feel your feelings or you can't express yourself. The goal is not to make your voice perfect 100% of the time every day. It's just to give you the tools that you can use when you're having issues or to optimize when you start becoming symptomatic, basically, and that you most of the time you're in a good voice. So maybe it's the goal is 70 to 80% of the time you're in a good, efficient voice, but you're allowing yourself some time to, you know, let your voice just do what it needs to do. I do a lot of myofascial release in my practice, a lot of manual therapy, and I've done it for years. I've always used it, but since COVID, I have used it so much more just because everybody is just a little more stressed, I think. And a lot of that manifests vocally when you're a professional voice user. So when you're a teacher, when you're even just being a parent, like as a professional voice user, I feel like you have to talk to your kids, especially when they're little. Absolutely. That can be super stressful. So (laughs) you're right. You've got emotion. (laughs) Yes. It's so funny because the question I always ask patients is, you know, tell me about your typical voice use day to day. Like, do you have any yelling or screaming or talking over loud noise? And it's hysterical because the most common answer is I have kids. (laughs) (laughs) Period. (laughs) Period. I have kids. Like that's all that needs to be said. I have some patients that say I have dogs. So they'll say that too. But yeah, it's kind of a given that you're going to use your voice. So that's kind of getting off topic with the conditioning piece. But really, I think mental health management it should be a big priority for anybody who's a professional voice user and just people in general, because if you are in a good place mentally, it's more likely that you're going to be in a better place physically. Things tend to manifest physically if they're ignored or not treated. A lot of times they'll manifest physically. And for a professional voice user, it's almost guaranteed it will manifest in your voice. Exactly. It won't be ignored. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's <known>. It'll scream. <laughs> yes, it will. So I think that's really, really important. Conditioning can look different for elite vocal performers and that they might need to, well, they do need to warm up and cool down as well. Professional voice users often don't think of needing to warm up and cool down because I'm not a singer, you know, I'm just going to work and talking to kids, but really doing just some simple vocal warmups just to stretch and contract their vocal folds and to get their air underneath their sound, you know, get their breath coordinated with their respiration optimizing their resonance, like all of these things can be really, really beneficial throughout the day if they will take just five minutes to warm up their voice before. And then often resetting is really, really helpful too. So if you have, you know, three classes and then a planning period and then two more classes, just taking, you know, two minutes during your planning period to do a little vocal reset can be really, really helpful as well. So I talk to patients a lot about that. And that goes along with just optimizing the efficiency of their voice people will come in who are habitual, you know, glottal fry, back focus kind of speakers, and they feel a lot of vocal fatigue. And they don't necessarily perceive a problem with their voice other than the vocal fatigue. So for those people, optimizing their voice is key because it will feel so different if you speak in a more resonant, you know, optimal place. 
So that is a huge thing I talk about with patients. Also, people who are habitually very loud, oftentimes making them aware of their loudness can make a big difference as well. So with people who are very loud who come to your clinic, do you often refer them to audiology? So sometimes. There have been a couple of patients in the past who are loud and also ask me to repeat myself a lot. And in those cases, yes. It's interesting because I've had a lot of patients who are, I don't want to say they're always like elderly couples, but oftentimes they are. They're noticing that their voice is getting tired. They're having to be really loud, but their spouse is the one who has hearing loss and refuses to wear their hearing aids or refuses to get their hearing tested. And so that is very challenging. I've had that on several occasions. So that's been an interesting experience trying to kind of work through that a little bit. I would say that happens pretty often. I've also had the opposite issue with some patients where they're habitually very, very soft. They're very quiet people. They don't want to call attention to themselves. So they speak with, they're under supported in their speech and they speak like this all the time. So making them aware of the fact that they need to be a little bit louder but also the fact that even though it feels like they're shouting, they're not. So trying to you know, bring some perceptual awareness into what they're doing is another challenge that you don't think of that you would have. But I've actually had quite a few patients that have been on that end of the spectrum as well. And that habitual soft voice can actually be irritating as well. Yeah. So making sure you're kind of meeting it in the middle. We call it the three foot rule. Speaking like you're about three feet away from somebody is really the optimal loudness level whenever you're speaking. And people who are on Bluetooth, who are on car phones, things like that, they're just so loud and they don't real. And I'm one of them. My husband's always like, you're yelling into the phone. <laughs> you're not aware. You're not aware. You're just like, you know, I think you need to be louder. So just bringing awareness into that, I think is huge, especially when they're symptomatic for something. What are the patterns that occur when I'm having my issue? I think is important. Well, thank you. That is so much information. Yes. <laughs> Very much appreciated. So as you described at the beginning, you discovered voice specialty and speech language pathology as you were in college. So for someone who might be wanting to transition to this area, who's an SLP, who really only had you know the graduate work and then they let's say they went on to work in early intervention and they're wanting to get into voice, what would you recommend? Sure. So it's interesting because things have changed so much since 10 years ago. <laughs> when I first went into it, I had a, a bachelor's degree in voice, which at the time, I feel like it maybe made me stand out a little bit in voice because not a lot of people were necessarily going in wanting to do voice and having that background. It has changed so much since then. We regularly have people who apply to internships or fellowships that have masters of music and DMAs and have this whole experience performing, which is really interesting, but it also makes it very competitive. So it's challenging. So I'll often tell people the biggest thing you can do is to seek out any sort of education and observation that you can try to make connections with people who are in this field so that you can observe with them and kind of see what it's like. I think that that makes a big difference. There's a ton of education opportunities at this point now. SIG3 is the voice special interest group. And that is really helpful in that there's lots of posts about different courses and different resources. And obviously their perspectives is great. Journal of Voice is another one with the Voice Foundation. They do a conference every year, which is really, really great. I like that one because they do, they'll do research presentation, but then they also do masterclasses. 
So they also do some hands-on work where you can sit in and learn a lot. Fall Voice Conference is another one that's a great conference for voice. They do it every year in different location. That's another one that's great. There's a lot of other voice conferences. And then there's specific things that you can do, like taking courses in you know, LSVT, taking courses in Forte, which is for presbylaryngeal aging voice, doing a course in resonant voice therapy, taking a fees course, taking a stroboscopy course, doing all of those things. So that way you're starting to get all of the knowledge and skills that you would need to work with voice. The Vocology Institute is one that is Dr. Ingo Tietze does that course or started the Vocology. And that's, I don't know if it's affiliated. So PAVA is the Pan American Vocology Association. That's another thing people can join. So there's all these resources. I'm just throwing them out there so people can research it a little bit. The Vocology Institute is a several week long summer program where you are certified in vocology at the end. So it's not necessarily an ASHA you know, certification, but it is a good way to show that I've learned more in-depth, thorough information about voice science and vocal pathology and all of that. That's open to singing voice teachers and speech pathologists. So anybody can take that course that's doing that. I have a clinician now who took it in the past and really enjoyed it and felt like she learned a lot from it. Aside from that, as a student, I would say get an internship in a voice clinic and get a try to get a fellowship in a voice clinic. That's super important, that experience, because then it's going to be much easier to find a job in voice. But if it's somebody who's already established, I would say just do all of these self-directed learning through courses. For some people, they might be interested in gender affirmative voice care. That's another thing there's courses for at this time. Taking singing voice lessons can be really helpful to develop your ear. That can be huge. I have to laugh because uh, for people who know me, they know that I am tone deaf and even (laughs) happy birthday is difficult. So I think I told you I enjoyed my voice course in graduate school and our beloved teacher said he could get anyone to sing. And so I, I volunteered to get up in front of the class and quickly he said, we'll talk later. And then he sit back down. So for someone like me who really is not gifted in that way, I, you know, I didn't consider voice because of that, but there are so many other, like I could never work with a voice athlete, but I could work with a lot of other people. So what is your advice to someone like me who might be in graduate school right now? Yes. I would say the other thing would be voice clinics also serve upper airway and dysphagia. So I have some of the clinicians at our practice are speech language pathologists. They work with voice. So they see our general voice patients, but they just specialists. So they do a lot with swallowing and everybody does a lot with upper airway. At this point, we see a ton of chronic cough, but I think being well-rounded is huge. So even if you are somebody like me, where you're like, I want to do voice and that's what I want to do. Make sure that you get experience in dysphagia. Make sure you know how to interpret a modified. You know how to interpret a fees exam. You know how to create a treatment plan for dysphagia patients. You understand the process of treatment for head and neck cancer and how that can impact swallowing and voice. I think being really well-rounded makes you very marketable. TEP, so laryngectomy care and TEP changes are another thing we do in the clinic. And so making sure you're aware of how to do this and you get some experience if at all possible. And then as far as upper airway, making sure you know how to manage chronic cough, talk, train breathing, train efficient breathing, and understand a little bit about vocal cord dysfunction or EILO or PVFM or whatever you want to call it, that you know how to manage that as well. Also manual therapy techniques. So myofascial release is great. There are several courses for that, but I do really like Walt Fritz courses are really, really good for myofascial release. I've enjoyed those. 
And I'm trying to think of anything else. Just making yourself well-rounded and voice swallowing an upper airway can be great. The other thing is people who have acute care experience or have hospital experience that really lends itself well to working in a voice clinic because you've done a lot of the acute phase of, you know, more medically complex cases. And in the voice clinic, even though you don't necessarily pair voice always with medically complex, it really can be because you're working with ENTs and laryngologists who are treating you know, head and neck cancers. So I think that that is really important. If you're a student who can't find a a fellowship or an internship in voice, go the hospital route if you can. Thank you. That is a wealth of information. So (laughs) I, (laughs) but very, very helpful. Very, very helpful. Okay. So I know you're very busy. Can you tell us about any special projects you have? And I would love for you to share your latest hobby. Oh, sure. Professional (laughs) hobby. So I just finished those chapters. So my husband says, never again will you be writing these because it took <laughs> so much time outside of work when I had a newborn and during COVID. So it was a little crazy. But yeah, right now I'm just, you know, going to try to enjoy the summer with my kids and try to have a little bit of normal life because my one-year-old has never known a non-COVID world. Um, wow. Yeah. Well, so I want to just be able to take a trip and enjoy that with them. And then my older one is almost five. So, you know, just doing that. And at the clinic, we have a new EHR, which is very exciting and (laughs) stressful. And so just that's my big project right now, as far as, you know, this is concerned. So I love performing. I love musical theater. That's always been my outlet. And now that I have two children and that COVID has been a thing and I have a husband who travels full time and I'm working in the clinic full time, I just can't commit to doing a full show. So I was trying to figure out how can I have my creative outlet that's more vocally based for me or more, you know, and I decided I was going to start doing some voiceover work. (laughs) So I met with someone in a studio. I did a little bit of training. I made a demo reel and I signed with a talent agency. And so now I'm starting to foray into the world of voiceover acting, which has been really insightful and interesting because I've worked with several voiceover actors in the past. So I have some feel for it, but I've never done it myself. But it's very fun. I just like doing the auditions, honestly, because it gives me a little time to kind of play with my voice and do something different and have a purpose to it, which has been really great. So that's my new hobby slash we'll see. We'll see. It's just something I do in my spare time. That's been fun. Oh, well, that's great. Well, it's great to have that creative outlet with everything else that you're doing. So Erin, thank you so much for coming today and talking. It was so helpful to learn about the professional voice user and the professional voice athlete and to share this time with you. So thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add before? I can't think of anything other than thank you so much for having me. I hope it was interesting to all those that are listening and I can send you my email address if anybody has any questions or anything for me. Well, that would be great. Now, some people will be listening through speechtherapypd.com and some people will be listening just through different podcasts. So if you don't mind sharing that. Sure. It's E Donahue, E-D-O-N-A-H-U-E at Sowence.com. It's S-O-E-N-T-S.com. That's my professional email currently. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. 
Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.